Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. Our guest today needs no introduction. Paul Ryan is a titan of the political world. At the age of 28, he was first elected to the House of Representatives, where he served 20 years representing his native state of Wisconsin. In 2012, he was the vice presidential running mate alongside Governor Mitt Romney, and from 2015 to 2019, he served as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Speaker Ryan recently joined AEI as a distinguished visiting fellow in the practice of public policy, and we are absolutely thrilled to have him here with us today. Guys, we are ecstatic to bring you this interview. We talked to Speaker Ryan today about some eternal debates, capitalism versus socialism, Equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, Chick-fil-A versus Chipotle, the whole host of issues. That was Max Frost you just heard from. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Tui. Although these are eternal debates, as Matt said, we like to think that Paul Ryan brought a little bit of closure to each one. And so without further ado, here is Speaker Paul Ryan. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Speaker Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you guys. So we wanted to talk with you about the appeal or perhaps the lack of appeal of conservatism and capitalism, especially among young people. Some polls say that more young people now support socialism. Uh, Why do you think that is? And is this unique or is every young cohort kind of like this? I don't think it's like every cohort. I am very alarmed by this. Let me tell you through my own lens. I'm 49 years old. When I was in college, the Berlin Wall had come down. And so coming out of college in the early 1990s, it was not a hard sell to explain why socialism was awful because we had millions of 20-somethings teeming out of Eastern Europe talking about how miserable it was. So at my time, coming out of college as a young person, there was no one making the case for socialism. It didn't exist. So that's I got involved in what was then called the supply-side movement, which was an economics movement. And so the, the case for free enterprise was more quantitative. It was more analytical. It was... It was, it was we all agree and accept socialism is horrible. So how does democratic capitalism evolve? How do you perfect democracy and markets and the thing, the rest of that? So that was my genre. I'm an ex-gen. The current generation has what I would call a very historically ignorant, romantic attachment to socialism. And it's just basic on emotion and altruism is how I see it. It's cool. It's zen. You got Hollywood people doing social media likes, and it's just, it's it's in vogue. And they look at Europe, and they see either nationalism, which is, you know, identity politics to the extreme, you know, blood and soil nationalism, or socialism, which is together, and, and we're all in it, and it's a, it's a soft form of collectivism. So it just seems cool. I don't think they even really know what it actually is. But so it, it definitely is in vogue, but I don't see this as necessarily always the case, or maybe to the point my generation was a one-off. Maybe my generation, because you saw Europe basically blow up because of socialism, uh, maybe my generation was was a one-off. But we have Venezuela. We have all these other examples fresh in front of us. So I, the long or the short of that is, is we have work to do 
to make sure that young people, this is what my foundation does, this is what I'm working on here at AEI, to make sure that young people have the scales lifted from their eyes so that they can see the perils and the pitfalls of socialism and understand what democratic capitalism, free enterprise, whatever you want to call it, how it is the best possible tool for upper mobility, for fighting poverty, for human beings than, than, than man has ever created. So, Speaker Ryan, what's the elevator pitch? Why is capitalism better than socialism? It does more for more people than any other system to organize societies that mankind has ever come up with. Capitalism is the best possible weapon against poverty and for upper mobility than any other system that humans can organize themselves upon. What about inequality, which now obviously is at the forefront of the whole political debate? Yeah. Uh, is it a problem? If so, what policy should be put in place? Yeah, my elevator pitch on that is, what do you want? Do you want a government designed to promote equality of opportunity? Or do you want a government designed to promote the equality of outcome? Two very different kinds of governments. Our system is designed for equality of opportunity. A socialist system is designed for equality of outcome. And my pitch to young people is then you have to have the government as your centerpiece in life. It has to be the core of everything. And take it from me, a person who spent 25 years in government, 20 of them in elected government, it's not going to be done so equitably. It's going to be cronyism, corruption, and you'll have even greater disparities. You'll have the super rich, the super poor, and very little in between. Again, look at countries like Venezuela. And so the best solution to income disparity and wealth gaps is more economic growth, more upward mobility, better education, turn on the escalators of opportunity, upward mobility. That is how you, you tackle the wealth gap. That's how you bridge the wealth gap, by growing the pie and making sure that everyone can have access to bigger slices of an ever-growing pie versus trying to have government redistribute slices of a shrinking pie. And that's basically the elevator pitch I give. One thing that was so, I think, convincing to a lot of people in our generation is, Jordan Peterson's idea of natural hierarchies just and I mean you can look we are well aware that you know talents aren't distributed equally and that hierarchies in every aspect are natural and I think is is that part of your message is yes they're natural so when you see these gaps it, it's it's just part of the order yeah, of things it's the whole point of promoting equality of opportunity right. so you can make the most of your life given right. your talents and and, and and have what you want so long as you're not infringing upon another person's right to do the same. That's fairness. That's, that's, that's what equality is. And so that to me is, is the argument, which is it's okay that there are differences. That It's okay that there are differences in, in every aspect. The question is, do we have a system that maximizes everyone's potential to make the most of their lives and to go where they want to go with their lives using their own volition? That's the question. And so that to me, you can... The, the, the pitch I make to – I teach college at Notre Dame. We're, we're all Notre Best Dame fans in this room. In at least, at least, at least that side of the I grew up a Boston Kevin's college fan. We have to hate Notre oh, Dame. We have to explain to those two what a football program is. Yeah, exactly. Is. Yeah. Yeah. BC, I, in my era, you know, Doug Flutie had a pass to Gerard Phelan, and that was about it. One guy. <laughs> yeah. One pass, you know, one, one team, right, one year. Right. I'm so sorry. One we didn't wonder. go on. Yeah, one hit right. wonder. But the way I pitch it to, to young people is you. I was just in Seattle talking to these Amazon execs the other day. I said, all of these people expect total customization and choice in their every single day lives. You pull your phone out of your pocket and you order and customize all these things in your daily life. 
yet you subscribe to a political philosophy that denies you the freedom of choice in the most important things in your life, like, say, health care? I don't get it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't jive. So I really do believe there is a really good case for, for a classical liberalism among our nation's youth. Uh, they just don't quite see it yet because their own personal experiences and preferences and needs and wants all speak to freedom of choice, free self-determination. Yet they're going to vote for politicians who want to deny them those things in all these basic areas. It doesn't jive. It doesn't fit. So I think the key is just making those connections. But when we talk to our peer group, the three issues that come up a lot are housing. Cost of rent is too, too high, as someone once said. Student debt is a big one. And also the environment. A lot of, a lot of conservative people our age also care a lot about the environment. Yeah, sure. and, they don't, and they don't think that the conservative movement is offering enough on these three issues yet. So what do you say to them? Well, I was present when the government nationalized the, the student loan industry. That was actually ironically, a way of paying for Obamacare. It was through a fiscal sleight of hand, a budget gimmick. But uh, when I went to college, um, I used student loans and I worked three jobs out of college, um, one of which uh, paid for all my loans. And I paid them off fairly quickly because we had a decentralized direct lending program. I got mine from this place called Great Lakes. And college was much more affordable. You had lower college tuition inflation and you had a very competitive student loan market that had to compete for your business, and they would they would adjust your payment based upon your circumstances. Now it's the Department of Education, take it or leave it. It's a bureaucracy. They nationalized it. They made it more expensive. Oh, and by the way, the trillion-dollar uh, contingent liability is now on the taxpayer books instead of banks' books. So it's another example of government intrusion that has made the cost of college more expensive, the cost of, of loans more expensive. And I'd say... Uh, education, like healthcare, have one thing in common. They have had so much government intrusion into this space and sector that has divorced price from choice and the consumer, which has been one of the reasons why the inflation rate is so high in them. So I think the answer is not more government, it's less government and more competition and choice, more market principles being applied to these problems. Um, housing, same story. And environment, you know, I think where conservatives, I guess older conservatives like me, see the mistake being made is um, the left uses the environmental issue in some respects as an excuse and a means to getting their ideological goals achieved that they otherwise could not achieve. Grow government, put schemes in place that have redistribution and have the, the, the government in charge of huge aspects of our economy. If the goal is better environmental stewardship, more conservation, then let's use these market-based approaches that do not trade economic growth and prosperity in for government control. Meaning, let's do R&D. Let's, let's have incentives. Let's have smart, basic research and scientific research to find the kinds of discoveries that give us cleaner energy without taking whole sections of our economy and turning them over to, to government bureaucrats, which will just become corrupt. Omar, do you see with millennials the generation, or I guess probably like the lower edge, what's after millennials? Gen, Gen Z. Gen Z. Gen Z. Even worse. <laughs> that's, that's my kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, no, no, no. My some kids exceptions. Are, my, your kids are great. Oh, no, they're working well. They're doing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so now, I mean, you have this generation that's been kind of raised with smartphones and with access to everything at every single moment, where the idea, you know, it's like, from everything, you want to shop, you go on your phone, you pull something out, you buy it. You want to find a new girlfriend, you go on an app, you start swiping through it. You know, on every aspect, it seems like people just are, have become accustomed to getting what they want I know. immediately. Absolutely. Do you think that that's going to lead to long-term 
negative political consequences. I do. I think the whole notion of deferred gratification is sort of out the window. That was such an, an important priority uh, of, in my generation, which is you work hard and you put in your, your, your time, your due, and the payoff will come down the road. I don't think that notion it permeates society among our, the younger generations as much as it did before. So I think there are just new challenges to dealing with all of these things and the psycholo- psychological issues that come with, with, with the digital age. It does. But also, again, there are good opportunities. There are opportunities to tell stories, to show data, to prove cases, why the, the center right is better than the, than the left. I mean, why classical liberalism, conservatism, um, rightfully understood from, from our own perspective, is a far better way for society to organize itself. And I think we have a good case to make, and I think there's an appealing case to make among our nation's youth as to why they should eschew these collectivist ideas, these socialist um, uh, impulses, even though um, you have we have more work to do in this digital age where it is instant gratification. It is sort of a, you know, it, it creates sort of an entitlement type of system. Absolutely. Speaker Ryan, I'm sure some people listening to this might say, well, you know, all this conversation about pro-free markets, pro-capitalism, pro-competition, it indicates a lack of empathy for people who aren't the winners economically in this system. But you worked in McDonald's, at McDonald's in high school, yeah. is that right? Yeah. What did you learn while there? Well, one thing I learned when I got the job, the manager asked me what it is I wanted to do. He said, I said, I'd like to be in the in the front at the cash register, interact with customers. He said, well, I don't, I don't think you have the social skills for that. So I'm putting you on the quarter grill. <laughs> so I think one of the things I did is I learned how to, you know, talk to people and become more of a per- people person. Uh, so that's a little bit of a joke, but it's, that is outstanding. it's kind of a true story. Um, look, I worked. Lights, hey, I'm sorry things bad. didn't work out. Yeah, for you that's socially. right. Yeah. So now I'm in, and then I went to Congress. Yeah, right. You aim low. So, yeah, I, I painted houses. I did landscaping. I detasseled corn. I worked on dairy farms. I did all these uh-huh. different things growing up as a kid. And after college, I worked on no the hill. No Uber driving? I drove the Wienermobile for one week. Um, <laughs> but I worked for Oscar Mayer for a summer. Yeah, no Uber driving. No such thing like that. But uh, the way I, I look at this stuff is... The best answer for poverty, and this is what I spend a lot of my time on. I'm, I, I teach at Notre Dame, and I'm on the board of the Laboratory for Economic Opportunity, which is working on de- evidence-based policy for poverty, which is another way of saying we can now use data and analytics, random clinical trials, to prove the best way for creating upward mobility and fighting poverty, and invariably, inexplicably, the market is the way to go. And what you we, So we can prove... That market economics and market principles, the principles of freedom and choice and self-determination, are the best possible principles to helping the least among us. And so this, to me, this is what I work on the American Idea Foundation, and this is what we're working on here at the American Enterprise Institute, is, is we need to not only deploy these principles, but prove these principles by saying, if you really want to get people out of poverty, if you want to get the root cause of poverty, break the cycle of poverty generationally shift and change the poor to an opportunity society, these principles are more needed now than ever. And we are deploying them in ways that we are proving it works. So of all things, if you care about the poor, if you care about wealth disparities and gaps, opportunity gaps, then the market, free market principles are the best possible principles to apply to that problem. And that is what we work on here at the American Enterprise Institute. And it's what I spend a lot of my time in my vocational life working on. Are there any test cases right now that you can point to that maybe things you accomplished when when you were in government? 
Uh, well, I, there are three laws that I worked to pass in my later years in government when I was Speaker of the House to work on these things. One was Opportunity Zones, which is a way of getting private capital in the poorest communities of America to revitalize communities. The second one was something called Social Impact Bonds, mm-hmm. private sector solutions to see, to solve social goods. And then the Evidence Act, which is um, evidence-based policymaking, opening up federal poverty programs um, for, for analysts to use data and analytics to go with what works best. And my, my point there is it ends up validating our principles. Work, personal responsibility, incentives do matter. And these are new policies we put in place. They're, the, draw, the ink is barely dry on these laws that I think will take these center-right principles, apply them to the problems of poverty, and help us get some serious, profound results. We just finished a 50-year war on poverty, and we barely moved the needle in the war on poverty. And the poverty rates are about the same, even though we spent upwards of $15 trillion over 50 years. And we measured success in the war on poverty based on effort and input. How much money are we spending? How many programs have we created? How many people have gone on those programs? Versus measuring success based on outcomes. Did people get out of poverty? Did we create upper mobility? Are people self-sustaining and and, and self-reliant? We now can do that. We now can measure success that way with some of these new laws. And, oh, by the way, by getting civil society engaged, by getting the private sector engaged, by getting private sector principles that have given us the best economy the world has ever known, we can apply those, those results, those aspects to the problem of poverty, make a huge difference. And I think that's a really good way of telling the story of free enterprise and capitalism as the best solution uh, for the least among us than, than we've ever known. How do you feel about universal basic income, which is something that has developed tremendous traction among millennials, conservative and liberal alike? I understand the intellectual appeal. I do not support the idea because I think it lacks an aspect of self-worth and, self- and personal responsibility. I think it lacks the proper incentive structure for people to, to, to move themselves up and out in life and to feel good and to have fulfillment in their lives. So it's sort of a hollow materialistic solution to what a bigger, deeper problem. Speaker Ryan, we only have a couple minutes left, so we got a quick, rapid-fire round of questions for you. I'm going to kick it off, and we'll go around. Number one, Chick-fil-A or Chipotle? Oh, uh, Chick-fil-A. I just started this recently. My kids love Chick-fil-A. And, uh, well, didn't Chipotle, isn't that the one that had the um, salmonella problem? Yeah. Yeah, um, so. E. coli. Yeah, E. coli, sorry. Sorry, Chick-fil-A. That just meant there were shorter lines, so. I'm glad you didn't say Culver's. Okay, great. Yeah, well, you didn't ask me Culver's. (laughs) Of course I did Culver's. All right, Peyton Manning or Tom Brady? Hmm. I hate to say this, but you have to give it to Tom Brady. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I hate to say it. Well, (laughs) there you have it. Favorite president? Uh, Lincoln, I'd say, because he kept us together. Um, I'd have to say Lincoln. What is your favorite state that isn't Wisconsin? (laughs) (laughs) My favorite state that, politically or just aesthetically? Aesthetically. (laughs) Aesthetically, Colorado. I spent my, my life childhood in, in our family in Colorado. I've been, I'm a mountain climber. I'm a skier. I'm a backpacker, uh, Colorado. I just got a really nice bull elk in bow season in Colorado this year. So Colorado is really high on my list you, after Wisconsin. You should put something up in your office, some antlers. Yeah. I don't know if there's room for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're pretty big. Yeah. All right. Favorite movie. 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. There is no other. Wow. I've not seen that one. That's a great answer. I'm embarrassed to say. Are you guys, how old are you guys? We're millennials. (laughs) Good grief. You've never heard of Spaghetti Western, Sergio Leone? (laughs) I've heard of it. Okay, well, I mean, don't let this week go by without seeing Captain America in that one? No. Oh, no. That's the Avengers. Good grief. All right, last one. Favorite restaurant in Washington, D.C.? I'm not really, I like cooking on my grill. Favorite thing to cook on your grill? Elk right now. (laughs) (laughs) If it's not elk, it's usually venison. Speaker Ryan, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you on the show. And thank you for educating our audience. And we can't wait to work with you. We can't wait to see what you do. Looking forward to it, guys. Go Packers, go Badgers, go Irish. Go Irish. Well, folks, that was Speaker Paul Ryan. Matt Winesett, what'd you think? It saddens me he's no longer on the political stage. He just he makes very compelling, powerful arguments for a lot of the principles and policies that I think that we all think would do a lot of good for the country. And it's just a voice that we no longer have out there. And yeah, I think it's interesting that he's now fighting in the war of ideas instead of the war in politics in Capitol Hill. So he's now addressing fundamental questions and worried more about the long term debates as opposed to the short term political wins. For me, there are two major takeaways. First is that it's great, his emphasis on using data to prove the free market case. A lot of times it feels like people are relying on ideology or just kind of like theories about free markets and the economy to make their case. And for a lot of people, it doesn't really cut it. Uh, Second takeaway was that Paul Ryan is a tall man. I expected him to be short for some reason. Turns out to be quite tall. Interesting surprise there. So, <laughs> ne- that's next, the big reveal. Really doing a service for the <laughs> listeners. It here. had nothing to it's do important. with socialism versus capitalism. Todd Paul Ryan is Manning. Look, listeners, if it were up to my co-host, this would be the most opaque podcast in the world. I want you guys to know exactly what's happening in the studio. That being said, who would whoever would really like to know what's happening? We are setting up a banter mailing list. If you would like to subscribe, just drop a line to banter at aei.org. We'll be sending out weekly updates uh, detailing the new episodes or the new guests, what we have coming out. And we've heard from numerous people that they don't actually know when new episodes come out. The podcast app doesn't really work. So we're trying to do this just to keep people in the loop about the show and what's going on here. This is just big tech coming after conservatives again. I mean, we want it, you know, we want people to know when banter comes out and, you know, people aren't finding out. So we're taking it into our own hands and setting up this newsletter. Power to the people. But don't worry, your favorite feature, the iTunes review, is still going to be around. We got another one this past week from Mike3006, who says, I've been listening to Banter for a while, and it is one of my favorite podcasts. The new crew is doing a great job, and the new Max is spicing up the dialogue. Great guests for the most part. Brett Stevens is a great journalist. I appreciate the focus on policy over politics. The guy on student debt was a little out there, but otherwise informative topics and opinions. Keep it up, guys. Well, first of all, Mike, you sound like a really smart guy, and I just want to say I appreciate it, and I think we've got a lot of exciting content coming. By the way, Winesett, how many stars did he give us? Five stars. Five stars. Wow. That's, what do you think of that, Frost? That sounds nice. So that for all like of you listening- really good rating. Just go do it. Yeah. <laughs> just go do it. Just go get the five stars right now. We're not going to wait all day. All right, and now we're going to do Watch, Read, Listen. Again, this is a segment where each host talks about something that was interesting, worth your attention, that we watched- read or listened to in the past week and Matt Winesett is going to start us off. My piece this week is from Andrew Sullivan, forthcoming podcast guest by the way. Andrew Sullivan writing in the New York Magazine with the headline, Boris Johnson is showing Western politicians how to win. All about how 
If you talked to somebody a couple months ago, if you thought Boris Johnson would win the biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher, they would have looked at you like you were insane. But by clever triangulating a new message, bringing in working class voters that the Tories historically have not been able to recruit, he has realigned British politics altogether. And Andrew Sullivan goes on to talk about the possible implications for this on American politics. Check it out. I'll do read as well, and I'll also talk about the UK. Right now, I'm reading a book called Post-War by Tony Jute. And the book is considered to be the best broad history of post-war Europe. It covers Europe from 1945 to 2005-ish. I'm about the section right now in the 1980s where he's talking about Margaret Thatcher and how she shook up the UK economy. And it really is astounding. A completely socialist, statist economy, inefficient in so many ways. And Margaret Thatcher com- came in and completely change the status quo. And the way he paints it in the, in the book, he's not... He's a pretty center-left guy. He's a pretty center-left guy. He's not incredibly sympathetic towards Thatcher, yet he obviously has tremendous respect for her and what she accomplished there. And it kind of made the UK that we have today. She's the Iron Lady. She what, is. Which is a movie I need to watch. Did you know that there's a movie... Yeah, Meryl Streep plays yeah, Thatcher. Yeah, it's on Netflix. I haven't so seen it yet. I haven't watched it yet. So, Tui? Well, unlike these two Phi Beta Kappa guys from UVA, I don't read at all. And so I was watching... <laughs> Mad Men this past week for the third time. I've, wa- I've watched this series now three times. And one thing that occurred to me, it's about the digital age just generally, is there's something so glamorous and exciting about advertising before it was all about, okay, how long can we keep someone's attention five seconds before we have to change our pop-up digital ad and instead it was something it was more philosophical it was more artistic it was creative there's something so satisfying about being creative and using that part of the human mind and now now it's just okay what's the clickbait bad you know liberty mutual ad you can do on youtube good jingle so a great company bad ad And so anyways, I mean, there's something so appealing and romantic almost about the age of advertising before computers and shrinking attention spans. Well, guys, that is our show today. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you especially to Speaker Paul Ryan for joining us. And stick with us for next week. We have a fantastic guest, Andrew Sullivan, the guy that I recommended in my read this week. You are not going to want to miss this interview. It's a long one, but I promise you, you will want to stick around for all of it. Andrew Sullivan is one of all three of our favorite writers. He's fantastic, British PhD from Harvard, conservative but very heterodox, fantastic guest. So we look, we're looking forward to releasing that episode. And as Max Frost said earlier, please send us an email at banteradai.org. We'd love to keep in touch with you. We'll let you know when an episode comes out, and you got to let us know what you think and any thoughts you might have. So thanks again. Thanks to Speaker Ryan. And that'll do today for Banter at AEI.